Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This one is entitled Richard Skipper Returns. He was a past guest on this show, and we're welcoming him back. He's a very inspiring man. I like to think of Richard Skipper as someone who has contributed both on stage and behind the scenes. He's an entertainer. He's also a show publicist, a blogger, an arts advocate. I could keep on going. He has a very interesting story. He started in Conway, South Carolina, and it ended all the way in Broadway. Richard Skipper, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thank you. You can keep going if you'd like. I'm just enjoying this. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to always be had. <laughs> As I was mentioning, your story starts in Conway, but you had this dream to go to New York. Can you tell us what was it about New York that made you feel like that's where you wanted to be and that's where you needed to be? Well, it's. Uh, I'm glad that you're asking that question to start off. I'm in the process, as you know, of uh, creating a one-man show starring moi. Uh, it tells my story. On August 5th, 1979, I was 18 years old when I arrived in New York. I came to New York with $500 in my pocket, a briefcase, don't ask, a Bible. I was a good little Methodist boy from Conway, South Carolina, my Michelin guide, and lots of dreams. And I had never been anywhere before. I had never flown. I had never really been out of either North or South Carolina. And uh, so this was a big, big thing. When I was 13 years old, I was reading The Power of Believing by Claude Bristol. That should tell you everything you need to know about the kind of kid I was. <laughs> but I was reading this book, and uh, this is a God's honest, true story. I was, happened to be reading a passage on August 5th, 1974. And it said, set your mind on a goal like a homing pigeon and go after it. I don't know what possessed me at that particular moment, but I closed my book and I went in and announced to my parents that five years to the date, I would be going to New York. And of course, my parents looked at me as if I was either speaking in tongues or speaking a foreign language all of a sudden because they had absolutely no grasp of what I was doing, and what they were hearing was some kid coming in with a pipe dream. <laughs> but I stuck to it. And for the next four, uh, five years, every year on August 5th, I would make the grand announcement, four years to go, three years to go, two years to go, one years to go. And then that last year from 1978 until 1979, when I actually came to New York, I'm packing my things, I'm preparing to go, and the entire time that I'm doing this, my parents are like, who is this person? You know, what makes you think you're going to go to New York, and what makes you think you're going to go there? Now, going back to your question was, you know, my image of New York 
was based on what I had seen in the movies and television. I had no frame of reference other than what was being presented to me at that time in my life. And when you think about it, I'm a product of 1960s and 70s television, especially the variety shows. That's the world that I wanted to be a part of. And uh, as I say in my show, I created that world. And I still do. Anywhere I could find a stage until I actually started performing on real stages, I created my own stages. They could be the front porch of my house or under the tobacco barns in South Carolina where I grew up. It was anywhere I got the opportunity to act out. And it didn't matter whether I had an audience there or not. I knew that this is what I wanted to be. And again, when you think about 1960s variety shows especially, like the Red Skelton Show and uh, the Cal Burnett Show and the Dean Martin Show and the Flip Wilson Show, I mean, we can go on and on and on with the number of shows that I don't know how old you are, I'm 58 years old, that this is, you know, what I grew up with. And that television was only about 30 years after the demise of vaudeville. So a lot of the people that we were seeing on these variety shows, it was just an extension of what vaudeville used to be about. And, of course, that was the world that I aspired to. And that world, for the most part, didn't exist in New York by the time I got here. So I don't know if I've answered your question, <laughs> but that was, you know, essentially all of the elements that came together that, that created this mindset of this kid that wanted to go to New York. When you went to New York, were you afraid? How did it feel? What was, what was going through your heart and mind? Well, there was the excitement. I will be very honest about something that I will share with you. I grew up in an alcoholic household. My father was an alcoholic. And when you grow up in that kind of an environment, you live your life as if you're on eggshells. You don't know what the next minute's going to hold. And believe it or not, that really, I guess, made things a little bit easier for me to deal with, that not knowing what was ahead of me. But the day arrived, it was a Sunday. It was a beautiful, sunny day. I mean, I still remember how gorgeous that day was. And I put up this brave front that I was excited and everything. It didn't really hit me until I sat on the plane for the first time. And as that plane was taking off, I'm not ashamed to tell you, I burst into tears. Uh, and it was the first time that I felt the fear of what was about to happen to me. Up until that moment, everything had been, you know, the excitement of getting to New York. So, very interesting story. I had found out about an acquaintance. I'm not going to call it, uh, this person a friend. An acquaintance that lived in New York. And he actually told me that he had his own apartment and he had a place for me to stay. The day that I arrived in New York, he was supposed to pick me up at the airport. And I called before I left my house. And he said, something's come up. I'm not going to be able to pick you up at the airport. Our next door neighbors in South Carolina, Mr. Mike and Miss Marion, he was a Washington, D.C. cab driver. 
And they were petrified that this 18-year-old kid was going to arrive in New York, get into a taxi, and the driver was going to know that I was green behind the ears and would give me a runaround and drive me all over New York before I got to my destination, which was 86th and 2nd Avenue. So they suggested to me that I get an airport limousine. So I am so excited and so nervous when I get off the plane, I see the word limousine and I go up and I rent a stretch limousine. Oh, boy. <laughs> and that is how I arrived in New York. I swear everything I'm telling you is the God's honest truth. <laughs> so the limousine picked me up. I got in the car. I arrived. You know, the funny thing is that when the driver stepped out and asked if I was Mr. Skipper, I thought that someone had sent the, this limousine to me. Because I, even though I had just ordered this limousine, I still thought that an airport shuttle was coming to get me. So when this driver pulled up, I thought this was a nice surprise until I realized that I had just paid for this. Um, it was only $67, which I guess is very reasonable or by today's standards, but was expensive then. So $67 of my 500 is already gone at this point. So I get up to the apartment, and it was a five-story walk-up, and I had to go. I climbed the stairs with David, and we got up to the apartment, and... The first thing that David tells me is that he, you know, loved to smoke weed. And here I am. I felt that I had jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. And my response to him was, I don't, you know, I don't care what you do as long as you don't try to impose it on me, which he said he would not do. So we went through uh, Central Park. He showed me various aspects of Central Park, which was, again, remember this is 1979, was very seedy. And so my, I remember being in the limousine and driving through Harlem up to 86 and 2nd. It was a very different New York from what New York looks like now. I mean, remember, uh, New York had just been on the brink of bankruptcy, and, you know, the crime was really bad. Central and Times Square was very seedy. It was a very different world from what it was. So we did a little bit of his being a tour guide. We get up to the apartment, and then he tells me that he's going to be staying with a friend that evening and that I have the place to myself. Again, I am alone in New York my first night. I didn't know anyone here. I did not even know how to order a pizza. That's how green I was. There was nothing in the refrigerator except for a loaf of wheat bread, a jar of honey, and a bottle of water. That was it. And here I am, my first night in New York. No food, no way to, no idea of how to even order something. And if I did order something, even telling them how to get to where I was, and he told me that I would be meeting his roommates, Brad and Lisa, the next morning. You'll have to see the show to hear what happened. <laughs> <laughs> they were not happy about my being there. I should say Lisa was not happy about my being there. So it was a very bizarre situation. I only stayed in that apartment for three and a half weeks upon getting to New York. Wow. That's almost frightening to hear about. <laughs> no, it's, I, I mean, it was absolutely, 
I mean, as I'm telling these stories, those feelings are so real with me. My director, Jay Rogers, on the show that we're writing together, he said, your recall is, is very scary. And I said, well, it was such a big deal for me. And it plays in my head like a movie. It's all there. I remember the touch and the feel and the sensory aspect of what New York was like when I arrived here. It was an incredibly hot day. It was the three H's, they say, here in New York, hot, humid, and hazy. Hmm. I'll never forget how hot that day was. I want to point the listeners to a resource, and it's entertaining, and there's lots of information on it. And I'm talking about your blog and they can go to richardskipper.blogspot.com. It also links from richardskipper.com. And there's some really, really fascinating entries. And as you were, you were talking, I remember reading years ago a really, really great blog that you did where you chronicled this journey that you took from South Carolina, moving to New York, from Conway to Broadway. And I remember one character that stuck in my mind, and I'm talking about, I believe, Millie Brown. Oh, my God. <laughs> Very good. You do your research. At my first audition in New York, which was on August 9th, I auditioned for Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. And I'm standing in line. It was Cattle Call. And for any of your listeners who don't know who that is, you know, it's just where they just open the doors to anyone who can come in and audition. There were long lines. I remember it was like 63rd Street, I think it was. And there were these long lines. And I'm standing in line with this woman, Millie Brown, who I eventually called the unsinkable Millie Brown. And she was a very eccentric woman, but we just happened to be next to each other. And she was really excited about the fact that I was this 18-year-old kid, uh, fresh off the farm in South Carolina. And we were just talking and everything. And afterwards, we went to get a bite to eat. And she gave me her number and said, if you need to call me, I'm there for you. And little did she know that I would be calling her again that night, because it seemed, even looking back on this time, that every time I went home, back to the apartment, I mean, there was another issue that I was dealing with. And she was my confidant. She was a sounding board. I was able to bounce things off of her. She eventually became a very good friend of mine, and I ended up getting an apartment in her apartment building the following February, and I lived there for the first, essentially the first five years of my life in New York, I lived in that apartment. Now, Millie was a very interesting character. She introduced me to my first pastrami sandwich. She introduced me to my uh, first trip to the Statue of Liberty. She introduced me to my first subway ride. She also introduced me to the John Birch Society. Think about that for a moment. I had no idea where I was going when I went into this organization. And I also met Roy Cohn through her. Now, obviously, I never joined the John Birch Society. And it was just, you know, a bizarre situation having brunch with and being at Roy Cohn's table. Hmm. <laughs> just a very strange lady. And for anyone who's going to go to this show, which it's going to be Monday, August 5th, 2019 at 8 p.m. It's going to be That's at right. 
the St. Luke's Theater, 308 West 46th Street. What can they expect? Honesty. But it's going to be upbeat. I say at the very beginning of the show, tonight, you know, there have been good times and there have been bad times, but this show is going to celebrate the good. And if anyone's interested in knowing about the bad, they can see me after the show and I'll answer all questions. The show's going to be essentially, it's a 90-minute show with song. It's going to be divided into essentially four sections. The first section will be about my life in Conway, South Carolina, prior to New York. And then the second part will be about the first, I would call it the first 10 years of my life in New York. The odd jobs that I had, the survival jobs, the things that I started, that I did before I started to get my own footing. And then you know this because you've interviewed me in the past. I spent 20 years performing as Carol Channing around the world. And I was considered the foremost Carol Channing impersonator, as much as I hated that word, impersonator, not Carol Channing. And the great thing that came out of that career was the fact that Carol Channing and many of her colleagues became my friends. So I am going to share those stories and drop a few names because I think that's what the audience wants to hear. And then the last portion of the show for about 10, 15 minutes, we're going to take questions from the audience like the old Carol Burnett show. So any loose areas or things that people don't would like to know a little bit more about, I will be able to go into a little bit more detail based on their questions. Given that you're somebody who uprooted himself from South Carolina and ended up all the way in New York, what would you say doing that has taught you about yourself? That you can, you know, it's an interesting question. I get a little tongue-tied over this. Uh, It's an interesting question because I'm doing The Artist Way by Julia Cameron, a book that I recommend to anyone out there who creates art. And we were, we had a workshop on Thursday night, and we were actually talking about hurdles that we've gone through in our lives that we got over. And when I think about the fact that at 18 years old, with nothing more than a dream, I went after it. And I went after it with a real abandon, not thinking about the negatives or what would not happen. I just kept pushing forward. And even now, 40 years later, when something is difficult for me, or I feel like I don't know if I could do that or not. I think back to that 18-year-old kid and the fact that with that kind of determination, he would go for it. The biggest issue, Paul, that most people have going through life is self-censoring themselves, editorializing a lot of situations, and this real concern about what others will think. And a lot of people don't go for their dreams. And they don't go for their dreams because other people say, well, you can't do that. That's not going to happen. And with very few exceptions, every single person that I knew that knew about this dream of mine all told me that I would fail that I would never make it New York. I didn't know anyone. I would not be able to survive in New York. My own father told me I would be home three weeks. 
after arriving in New York. Hmm. And it was just that I was that determined that I would make it happen. I know that there's someone out there that is thinking about moving to New York, or they're thinking about moving to Hollywood, or wherever to pursue their dream or to pursue their art. What would you say to that person? Before you make that leap, see if you can pursue your dream in your own hometown. When I left South Carolina, I had done a lot of theater with our local theater of the Republic, which, by the way, this show that I'm creating, I'm taking back to my hometown to perform it in September, September 28th. And I came to New York pretty much knowing who and what I was as an actor. I knew what I was good at. I knew what I was bad at. I knew what I needed work on. So those things, I think, are important to hone in whatever town you live in. And, you know, and especially nowadays, it's a very different world than the New York that I came to. And I think that the world is even more connected than it was then. I mean, you can go online from any city in the world and submit your picture and resume and get an audition. I mean, when I came to New York, that didn't exist. You had to be in New York or Hollywood in order to pursue a career. And if you're able to do, I mean, it's very expensive living in New York. I say that if you're able to pursue your dream from wherever it is that you are, you know, take a trip to New York and audition for as many shows as you can possibly audition for in a given amount of time. There are theater conferences that take place all over the country now. You can go to those theater conferences and be seen by theaters. The other thing is, the downside of all that is that we don't have as many regional theaters as we had when I came to New York. I think that when I came to New York, there were, I think the last, there were like 300 plus regional theaters in operation around the country. And I think now that number is around 95. Wow. Now, I'm not talking about these big theater houses that where national tours go through. I'm talking about Summerstock Theater. They've all disappeared. Well, I want everyone to visit richardskipper.com. Again, I wanted to invite everyone to go to this event. And it's going to be this August. August 5th which is the actual anniversary of the day that I arrived in New York. That's right. Monday, August 5th at 8 p.m. It's going to be 308 West 46th Street, New York, New York. And people can either buy their tickets by going to Telecharge, or they can go to richardskipper.com, click on the yellow star, and it'll take you right to the ticketing site. Is there anything you'd like to say to all of our listeners out there? Completely and totally open-ended. Well, I always say, you know, with all of my shows, I always end the show by saying, go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. And that's a message that I still send everyone. And, you know, if you believe in what you're doing and you really want to go after those dreams, go after them. That's what they're there for. And life is too short. And while you're thinking about it, somebody else is out there doing it. That is so true. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for spending time 
Well, thank you. I can't wait to hear this back. <laughs> me too. And if you need anything, just feel free to give me a call. All right. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. And I do want to say, you know, to your listeners, you can follow me on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. It's Richard Skipper. Google me. There's a lot there. Go for it. There is a lot there. And I have to say, everyone also check out the blog. There are some really, really fascinating stories and all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Have a great day. Bye. Zip, bip, bibbidi bop, boobity zing, dang, bon, chee, chee, zing, ba, bang, do, coo, chee, atzikili, matzika, oh, you should get gone, go, go, I don't go, easing, go to glen, dang, I'm bon, tight, it'll, 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 I'